Talent Talk radio show brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping all businesses with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving clients access to the best human capital, due diligence and background checks available unprospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. To learn more, simply visit www.peopleg2.com. Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in again here to Talent Talk Radio Show. And joining me here is I have two wonderful guests, uh, Set up to talk to us today. I'm. Uh, seems like my cold has returned, so the husky voice. Don't be fooled. It's still me. Uh, it'll it'll go away though in a few days, I'm sure. But in case this is the first time uh, you're tuning in, um, and my voice does not sound unusual to you today, uh, let me tell you a little bit about how the show works. Um, basically, we really center the topics of this of this uh, show around talent recruitment, management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. So. These being such timely topics for CEOs and entrepreneurs and HR pros, business leaders, that we hope that you can tune in here each week, uh, learn something, whether it's from the live broadcast or from the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, and then you can hear something that you take away and will help you grow, impact your own career in a positive way, and you know just hopefully take something that's actionable right away. So I've personally met so many of these inspiring leaders at events and uh, programs where I've spoken. And had the real privilege of meeting them and, you know, in this conversation individually between the two of us, thought we'd bring this conversation out to the public. So this show is really designed to give you an opportunity to listen on on our dialogue as we explore some different topics that are related to their expertise, their interests, and, you know, what the audience at large generally likes to hear and talk about. So Talent Talk here is live every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, you can get us on the TuneIn Network, on the TuneIn app or the TuneIn browser if you want to hear us live. Um, but as I mentioned, you can also go on the podcast on iTunes or you can find any iHeartRadio app browser. If it's iHeartRadio, then you just type in Talent Talk and you can find our past shows. So we've amassed a really great following, over 276,000 of you interacted with at least one or more of the podcasts from the past uh, through our different platforms, and we really want to thank all of you for, for doing that and being a regular part of it. If you have any questions uh, for my guests today, you can submit them via Twitter. Just send that question and use that hashtag Talent Talk. If you got room, add in the at PeopleG2. That really helps us. My producer, Mike, can help me feed in the questions, and we'll work them into the show. All right, so now we got the business out of the way. Let's talk about my guests. Uh, my first guest will be Kevin uh, Sheridan, he's the employee engagement and virtual management expert at, uh, I think I hope you know, it's Kyra Cavanaugh. I'm probably murdering that, but we'll find out here in a second. Um, and so Kyra Cavanaugh will be the second guest and president of Life Meets Work. So uh, we'll have Kevin on first, uh, and then we'll have Kyra after the uh, first commercial break. So Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Chris. I'm thrilled to be here, and I know Kyra is lucky we've turned out. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and about your company and what you're doing. So I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've started three different companies, and the last one was called HR Solutions. All three companies measured some form of job satisfaction or, for the last 18, 20 years, engagement. And I sold that firm four years ago. And while I was selling it, I wrote two books, and lo and behold, one of them hit six of the bestseller lists, and so that's changed my career. 
I am now a uh, public speaker that speaks a lot on employee engagement and onboarding and the generational differences and never had more fun in a job. Well, that's great. It sounds like you and I have a lot of, of parallel paths in talking about engagement and virtual management. So I'm really fascinated to hear some of the things that you're talking about. What do you see companies doing right when it comes to managing their human capital right now? Honestly, uh, not much, although there's hope. There's a lot that's wrong. What I do get hopeful about is that many companies are finally seeing how important it is to acknowledge and respond to the changing workforce that we have. As of last year, millennials uh, eclipsed baby boomers as the largest single segment of the workforce. And their drivers for their engagement are entirely different. I'm hopeful that we've got a long way to go. I do see some companies respecting that millennials uh, prize their life over their work, and they don't want to be doggedly coming in every day and spending endless hours working. They'd rather enjoy their life, which is actually something that us boomers could have learned from, but we were raised by different parents. Uh, The companies that are smart and leading edge, they're realizing that workplace flexibility is critical. Corporate social responsibility is highly valued by the millennials because they they want to know they're working someplace that is giving back to the community. We're finally getting an increased interest in pre-boarding and onboarding because the report card on how new employees join, join organizations is just flat out awful. Only 44% of the people that are onboarded think that the welcoming experience was was good. And so we do see an increased emphasis on that. I just actually did a webinar last week for uh, the Society for Human Resource Management. We had over 4,000 attendees. It was the single largest webinar in the SHRM history. And that makes me hopeful that people are finally getting it, that they need to spend more time on this because, as I said in my book, one out of every 25 new employees quits on their very first day. Wow. That's a statistic. I, I mean, maybe you can say that again. I don't know if everyone got that. Say that one again. Yeah, one out of every 25 brand-new employees winds up quitting on their first day. And the reason for that is that a very bad onboarding experience. They're not met at the door by their manager. They're not given immediate introductions to their new coworkers. They're not told where the bathroom is, given a bathroom key, my favorite is they're shepherded into a dark conference room to watch some antiquated corporate video, or they're giving boatloads of paperwork to fill out. I mean, could you redefine boring? That is a terrible onboarding experience. Yeah, and I've heard people you know, complain about not having a desk, not having a computer, no passwords, no ability to even do their job. Um, you know, there's all kinds of list of frustrations that people can have in that, that process. And, and yet I think there's still that common thing that uh, maybe people have that, well, I went through it. You have to go through it. We don't know about you yet. We don't know if you're going to work out yet. So why put in all this effort, you know, on the first day if you're not going to work out? So there's always that kind of back and forth. But one out of 25 is a pretty powerful number. If you just take a very conservative number of what it costs to get somebody from that process of identifying them, you know, advertising that job, all the interviews they go through, uh, any background checks you're paying for, other assessments, all this, the whole process. And then for one to 25, I mean, that is a gigantic number. That money is just, that's huge money that's being lost. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I just read a study done by IBM uh, in the last month 
that they surveyed the recruiting and hiring managers and asked them, for the people you just hired, how many of them would you not hire? And the figure was almost 40%. 40% regretted hiring those people. Wow. Well, that, that's uh, I guess that, that's, that's good advertisement for my company, but um, that's a really high number. If you're going to regret 40%, you, you, I'm sure there's a lot of things that go into that as to do they not do enough due diligence? Do they not really make sure that person fit in? You know, there's, a, I guess, a lot of things in there. You know, if we look at, you know, are there things that people are maybe specifically in this area or in general you're seeing that they're just really failing at? Absolutely. Uh, let's go back to that 39% regret, you know, we, we should never have hired them. And, of course, now they're on the payroll and they're tough to get off. One of the, the best things that I've uh, put on my website that's helped hiring managers is something I call the non-negotiable list. And the origin of the non-negotiable list was a lot of mistakes that we made at my old company in hiring the wrong people. And, Chris, invariably I'd get one of my managers on the heels of a termination or someone quitting, and they'd say, you know, when I interviewed him, he blanked, blank, blanked. Well, <laughs> Why did that's a red flag? Why didn't you act on it? So we created a non-negotiable list, twenty different items that if we saw it, we're not going to hire the person. I put the first two things on the list. Can't look me in the eye. Sorry, Chris, I'm not going to hire you. I don't want to work with people who can't answer the most rudimentary, basic question. Uh, you know, chewing gum in a job interview, or given the fact that millennials grew up with an iPhone, and us boomers did not. 36% of millennials think it's okay to send a text or field a text in the middle of a job interview. To me, that's bad parenting. So that's one area. I knew all of my best-in-class clients, Chris, and these are the top 10% on engagement. Every single one of them had a recruiting process that was like a gauntlet. They were really careful about who they let in the door. What else is not working? Well, Gallup's recent data for this year on what percent of the workforce is engaged, we're still at a paltry 30%, only 30%. we we got a long way to go on engagement. The number one driver of engagement, which is feature, featured in my bestseller, is recognition. And there is a dearth of recognition out there. As, as Dan Pink says in his great book, Drive, there's a desert of thank yous out there. And there are other reasons why recognition is not happening but should be happening, and I can elaborate on those if you'd like me to. Yeah, I'd love to know your thoughts on why it's not happening, because this is a very common theme that when I give talks on employee engagement, we spend a lot of time on is how to thank people, what's the process, what's sort of that, you know, the philosophy behind it. But I am always shocked at how much, you know, people are writing things down, and, and I'm like, this is not brain surgery. I did not get my PhD in employee engagement. This is just basic stuff. To How do you thank people? How do you recognize them? How do you make sure they know you appreciate what they did? And yet that seems to be just a pillar into people being happy and wanting to continue to do their jobs and do them well. So I'd be fascinated to know kind of your thought process on why you think that's not happening. Well, you know, it's it's interesting when i wrote my bestseller which is called building a magnetic culture there were two or three times that i went back to my editor and i said you know i just wrote about the golden rule why to treat others like you'd want to be treated and you know i, I feel like i'm almost talking down to the reader 
And my editor and my coworkers said, no, 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 I've heard you tell the war, war stories about, you know, this terrible boss. And frankly, Chris, one of my most popular blogs this year was called Horrible Bosses. And I began it by saying, you know, it's not an accident that Hollywood made a movie called Horrible Bosses because, frankly, there are millions of them. There was even a sequel to that movie. Is a horrible boss going to go out of their way to recognize your good work, Chris? Absolutely not. The other problem is you've got people that are bosses that are well-intentioned and they want to recognize and say thank you, but they're just too busy. And that's why one of the best practices on recognition is to make it inescapable. As Zig Ziglar said, people often say that motivation does not last. Well, neither does bathing. That's why we recommend it on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. And they have to have that process in place. You have to really have a mechanism where that can happen on a regular basis, and it can't be left to one manager or one HR person to do it. I mean, it really has to be, in my mind, a, a, a part of the overall culture of the company that this is what we do. We appreciate people. We find ways to recognize them. We find ways to say thank you. We find ways to go out of our way and let everybody know what somebody else did for it for me. Or else, it, you know, you might have a month or two of, of thank yous and then it dies off if it's not a part of the culture. Do, do you agree with that? Absolutely. You build it right in to your hardwired way of doing things, which is another way to say culture. And the second driver of engagement is even more important now, given the millennials and they're, you know, they're taking over the workforce and now actually being asked to be managers. That second driver is career development. And if you ask any group of you know, managers, hey, honestly, when was the last time you met with each of your direct reports and had a one-on-one -on -one dialogue about where they were headed in their career and say the beautiful words to them, and how can I help? Most managers have not had that meeting every quarter like they should. Well, millennials, they not only want a career path, they want a career tra tra trajectory that's essentially a rocket ship. They want to accelerate their process. So it's even more important to leverage off the best practices for that that second driver, career development. Right, right. Well, you've mentioned uh, the, the virtual manager, your bestseller. Um, and so, you know, this was something that was really interesting for me because um, my company is virtual. We took it virtual about seven years ago, and it's been the best thing we ever did. And so this is really a different model that takes a lot of, different sets of skills. I know um, when I speak about it, uh, people are, uh, it's almost like I'm, I'm asking them to learn French. I mean, it's just so foreign to them uh, that this is an idea that can work, that it can possibly exist and be successful. And so can you talk a little bit about some of the key points that you raise, you know, that someone can successfully manage a virtual company? Yeah, it's an entirely new way of thinking, and I'll be honest with you, Chris, I used to be that old fuddy-duddy uh, old-school manager that thought I needed to see people in order to manage them. Mm -hmm. And I was coached in school by two of my best employees who were younger workers, and they morphed me into a huge believer of virtual work. Chapter 1 extols all of the virtues, both for the employer and the employee, of why workplace flexibility is critical. It shows that if you want to be a best place to work, you better have a work-from-home policy if it's at all possible that jobs could be telecommutable. 82% of the Fortune 100 best places to work allow workplace flexibility. 81% of all people that have worked remotely 
have uh, reported that they had a better productivity. And why is that? Well, the thief of corporate productivity is interruptions. The average American worker at a corporate workplace environment is interrupted 60 times a day, and they only get back to the task at hand after the interruption 40% of the time. So with the other 60%, they got to start all over again. Gallup proved that, that virtual workers put more hours in and they are more engaged. I could spend a whole other half an hour on all the other benefits. From the employer's standpoint, saving on real estate. I mean, I'm sure you were thrilled when your company went totally virtual. You're not having to write a check. Chapter 2 is trust. Oh, by the way, I did send that book to Marissa Meyer on the heels of her banning working from home at Yahoo which didn't go, <laughs> go over very well. Just put a note on I said, Marissa, you may want to read Chapter 1, and, of course, never heard from her. Right. Imagine how that culture was after she banned working from home and then decided to build a nursery next to her office. Uh, that didn't go over very well. Chapter 2 is trust. You cannot have a successful virtual relationship without a, a feeling of trust. And chapter through trust or chapter three starts with hiring the right people. And there are four key qualities you want to look for when hiring people that are going to be working in remote positions. I call these the, the four S or self characteristics. They need to be self starters, they need to be self motivated, self disciplined, and lastly self sufficient. Well, those are all uh, really, really great, and I, I agree with those 100%. That's been our really our experience. You know, we went virtual. It was because we were it, the recession had hit, and it was one of many things we needed to solve. One was we don't want to lay anybody off, so how else can we save money? And that was a way for us to do that. Uh, drastic cost savings um, in going virtual. But um, <clears throat> what we found was is that some of our staff that maybe weren't really holding up their end of the bark and they kind of they 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 decided they were they didn't like it and they left. We had just a few of those so they kind of opted out on their own. But the rest of them it was very, very clear because uh, who was doing what work and who was really um, doing great things. So for us it made it much more transparent as to who the best of the best were because now everything had to be measured as opposed to everyone, you know, being in a large room and it's easy to for people to look busy, it's easy for people to share in other people's work and appear like they you know, really were a part of something. When you go virtual, I think that all changes dramatically. But one of the interesting components about virtual is this sort of partial virtual. So we've gone completely virtual. So for us, there's no in-between. But there are companies that try to you know, have some you know, work-from-home or telecommuting policies do you find that that's a bigger challenge because you have some people who are in the office and some people who aren't, so that FaceTime and the politics and things like that become more complicated? Absolutely. Um, you know, when you work virtually, it's, it's very lonely. There's feelings of separation and isolation. and So if you're managing people that are working remotely, they need a little more recognition. There should be regular connection calls. They should have all the technology to feel they're part of the culture and the company and part of the wider purpose. Um, I worked virtually for a couple years when I founded my first company, and I was in a basement. I just made it a regular habit to get the heck out of the house. I'd go for a three-mile run, make myself a sandwich, and go sit by the pool for a half an hour, which was really, really a nice break. 
virtual workers also to love, love to walk their dogs. And you know, when they're walking their dog, they, they're thinking about new innovations. They've come up with ideas that benefit the company, which I think is just a win-win. Yeah. Uh, and for us, one of the important things we've done recently is put people into small teams and they have to regularly work with those teams, talk with those teams, and that kind of helps pull people out of that as that loneliness com- component you mentioned. But if you have a regular team, then you have a group of people who you talk to, you rely on, you socialize with, even though it's virtual. Um, and we kind of got a lot of our best practices out of a great book called Team Genius that I suggest anyone reads who, who works with teams and wants to know how teams really can work effectively. Uh, it was a great book for us. I know you also were kind of running out of time here, but you had another book uh, called Building a Magnetic Culture, you know, which kind of draws in about talent, empowering people, um, sustaining that, you know, and creating a great environment. Um, what are some of the challenges that companies face when they're trying to really build a successful culture that you see? I think the biggest challenge is a lot of companies haven't really defined culture and you'd be hard-pressed to find one clear and consistent definition of culture because it encompasses a lot of things. I've always called it the, the uh, invisible architecture of the organization or the invisible hand that guides values and behaviors of the employees that work there. Um, it's what's being said when the boss is not in the room. It's everything about the company that's not in the company handbook. So defining it is critical. I would define it as the beliefs, values, and shared vision of the organization, the cultural aspects of workplace flexibility. Does the company prize, uh, uh, prize diversity and inclusion? And then the big one, which is the missing driver of engagement, is do they encourage fun? You know, the sad thing, Chris, I, a beautiful thing, the average five-year-old laughs 113 times each day. The average person that's been working a while, that's 44 years and up, laughs a whopping 11 times per day. That's awful. We need more laughter and levity in the workplace. And after all, one of the main people, the main reason people quit is job stress. What better medicine than a little levity and fun in the workplace? Those are what I would uh, encourage people to include in their definition and to appreciate generational diversity and manage it differently. Get training in place so millennials are relating better to boomers and so forth. 72% of the American companies out there report that they have generational friction in the workplace, which is significant. Building a culture that eradicates separation and bridges the gap of that diversity is so important. Well, it's uh, we've talked a lot about some really fantastic topics. We've mentioned a few books, and I'm wondering if given all the books that you've put out, if you've also been reading a few books, or maybe there might be one in particular you might suggest that our audience check out, of course, after they've already gone and read your two books, but is there a book that you're right now you're reading that you might uh, suggest they check out? Absolutely. It's actually a, a, it's along the lines of, of the, the need to reflect upon oneself, because after all, one of my main messages on engagement is, Everybody has to accept their own role in their own engagement. So I'm reading a book called A New Earth. It's been out for a while. It's by Eckhart Tolle. And it's really just an exploration of self, who you are, you know, how ego can control you or guide you to the right place, and, and really how to live your personal life differently. I found it interesting, the parallels with employee engagement. 
By the way, uh, my books are called Building a Magnetic Culture and the Virtual Manager. They're on my website, which is kevinsheridanllc.com, and I'm proud to say that I have personally signed over 30,000 books. So if the people get the book at my website, they'll not only get it at a discount, but I will personally sign it for them. Well, that's great, and I hope your hand holds up. Uh, yeah. Oh, that'll... That, that will get you an old-school uh, signing machine or something, because that, that's a lot of signatures. <laughs> well, you know, you write a book on engagement, you better show the, uh, the, the behavior of an engaged employee, which is extra discretionary effort. So I don't mind doing it. <laughs> well, uh, it's really been a pleasure having you on the show. We did not get to everything, and so I really want to make sure we have you come back at some point, and we can get to everything else that we didn't uh, get to, and continue this conversation about culture engagement and virtual workforces but uh, Kevin it's been a real pleasure having you on the show Chris thanks so much I really enjoyed it alright up next we'll have uh, Kira Kavanaugh who will join me after this quick commercial break imagine what it would feel like to lose everything your job, your home, your family your dignity this has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. As a reminder, you can uh, find us on iTunes and the podcast app, the iHeartRadio app or website. Um, you can also go to talenttalkradio.com, and we're happy to, uh, you can find all of our shows there, listen to past shows, and interact with us on uh, Twitter or Facebook, wherever that is. And also, don't forget, you can go to peopleg2.com, go to the blog section, and we do a full written recap of all the great things that the guests talked about, any books that they mentioned, any other links or things like that. So if you didn't have time to take notes when you were listening, we list we listed all there. So um, uh, my next guest will be uh, Kira Kavanaugh, president of Life Meets Work. So uh, Kira, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much, Chris, for having me. So tell everyone a little bit about yourself and, of course, about what your company does. Yeah, thanks. I'm the president of Life Meets Work. We're a team of almost 20 people now, growing very quickly. We offer consulting, training, and coaching services to companies who are looking to redefine how work gets done and improve the lives um, and the profits of both the people and the companies um, themselves. So I'm glad to be with you today. 
yeah, it's great to have you on. And, you know, you have a varied background that includes marketing and business development. And obviously <laughs> these experiences help shape anyone, you know, into being the kind of leader that you are now. So, and I'm sure you have other you know, influences in the way it helps you with other companies and moving forward and culture and workforce. So can you maybe talk about what these things were that were most impactful in your past experiences that really helped you shape, you know, your company and how you work today? Yeah. And so what makes me different is, is that I come from outside of HR or OD, learning and development, work-life, diversity and inclusion. I come from sales and marketing, business development, buying, training, um, accounting. And you can kind of tell I never found that um, one true love of mine in corporate America. But I um, was shaped by all of that because I believed that people were really the key to a successful operation, and yet the people part of business was relegated to, um, you know, outside of those kind of line leader roles. And I just thought, why can't you be focused on marketing and the impact that people can have on operations and the impact that people can have. And in um, my final role before I went off and started Life Meets Work, I really started to become very intrigued by kind of that dynamic and what happens when an organization really does focus on people and how it, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. You can invest in people and care about the lives of people and still be a highly profitable, highly um, you know, big, growing company. Um, so I think it shaped this idea that there's it's one or the other. It shaped me and my perceptions to realize it can be both. Mm-hmm. And this is really a different idea. I mean, these are, you said you're sort of kind of going against the grain a little bit in in some people's perceptions. So can you talk a little bit about what it means to help these companies really think differently about work? Yeah. So I joke that, you know, in MBA school, MBA schools need to go through the same kind of transformation that medical schools have gone through over the last decade, that um, in the medical school example, you know, there was sort of this realization at some point that doctors needed bedside manner, that it wasn't enough to be technically proficient. And I believe the same thing that uh, needs to happen for our senior leaders as they're growing and developing in their careers. They need to recognize and understand people as an asset, uh, not a cost center, not a um, something to be managed, but something to be people, to be optimized. And until or unless um, the senior leadership of an organization makes that connection, then anything that that those companies are doing, whether it's expanding paid leave, which we've seen um, explode over the last year, whether it's implementing a flexible work program, improving the benefits, packages, and other sorts of support, unless they see that this is more than just this investment in making people happy and they really start to look at the organization, the structure of the organization as a whole, then people are going to continue to leave. You know, we do a ton of training with middle managers primarily, sometimes senior leaders, sometimes HR people, and managers by and large across industries, um, both private and public institutions, they're exhausted. 
And they're running out of ways to motivate people. They're running out of ideas about how to get more work out of people when headcounts have never come back to those original pre-recession levels. And so um, what the work we do and the work that I'm really passionate about is to help leaders at all levels understand that it isn't about being nice to employees. It's about really understanding the contribution that engaged, happy, supported people can be making. Yeah, that's really important because it's easy to do something on a very short term, a very superficial level that might make people happy, you know, for the next 10 minutes. Like, you know, you could just buy them pizza, I guess, or something. But <laughs> Put a pool table in the break room. Right, or, I don't know, hand out candy. I mean, there's like there's those yeah. things, and some of the people don't like those things, but that's not going to overcome other larger issues like... You know, do I really have the autonomy to do the job that you hired me for? Do I really have the tools and the resources to do the things you want me to do? Are, are the goals of the company and what, and my goals specifically as an employee realistic to the job that, you know, I'm being asked to do? And there's so many things that go into that on a much deeper level. And, you know, does the company work well together as a, as a company, as a culture? And, you know, how are those leaders interacting, you know, across the board? Those are much bigger, harder topics. I mean, it's a lot easier to buy pizza and hand out a Snickers, but that, those bigger issues are really going to have a huge, a huge, you know, I guess a more dramatic impact, I might say. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we joke um, that we do the hard work. We don't do the easy work. It would be much easier for me to be selling benefits, right? We sell wellness, huge, huge money spent on wellness, um, over the last few years. And when you ask um, HR professionals now, did you get your money's worth, you're not always going to hear a positive um, result. So we are at a point now where we, we can't keep um, engineering, re-engineering the easy stuff, the Snickers, the, the foosball tables, the um, you know mission-driven trips and things that appeal to, to millennials and Gen Z. We can't, we've run out of um, the ability to optimize our engagement based on those kinds of easy fixes. And so, and we hear it from our clients. Now the hard work starts. The challenge for HR and OD and learning and development, diversity professionals, et cetera, is that it means engaging their leadership in understanding the business case for doing the harder work. We have a client that calls it shiny shinies, right? The Snickers bar example that you gave. We can't just keep chasing shiny shinies. And that means that leaders have to buy in. And um, people um, in the organization that are charged with people, as though it's some separate <laughs> set of activities and focus areas, don't always have the power. I mean, we've talked about that in the HR industry for a very long time. And so there's sort of this moment of opportunity that we have now. And leading organizations are making those connections. We have leaders um, in our client companies who are pulling me aside and saying, we have to do this hard stuff. We have to get this right. And I don't necessarily know how to do it, right? It's that humility as a leader that really creates opportunity. But you're right. It's much harder work to do. So you kind of identified, you know, doing this hard work. So what are some of the greatest challenges that you see in this current workforce and even kind of going into the future that people are really going to have to tackle? 
Well, I think we have to stop blaming millennials. I hear a lot of leaders blaming millennials. If only millennials were acting the way boomers acted, if only millennials would just understand the business of business, then we wouldn't have all of the challenges that we have. We wouldn't have to rethink our workplace. If only, you know, the talent shortage wasn't finally catching up with us, then we wouldn't have to do this hard work. And the bottom line is is that we have been um, squeezing productivity out of our organizations for a long, long time. And so the hard work that has to be done now is to really think about performance management, but not by abolishing annual reviews. It isn't performance management is no longer the focus. The hard work isn't about rethinking the annual review. It's about skilling up every single manager to be able to accurately convey their expectations in ways that people completely understand. And for everyone, peer-to-peer, leader to subordinate, to be able to hold each other accountable. That's one example. And it's not happening. When you have, when we have conversations with managers, it's amazing what happens. They start to see where the breakdown is in their conveyance of, of um, expectations. And they start to see that holding people accountable is really just the follow-on to how to set those expectations in a way that everybody can measure whether or not stuff is getting done. That would be one example. I think another that we spend a lot of time working with managers on is this issue of capacity and workload. It is no longer enough to expect people to be available 24-7-365. And so what does that look like? It might mean that a manager has to have a difficult conversation with his or her leader to say, you know what, we can't do this in the time that is allotted. And yet when so many people are still living in this post-recession fear of I might lose my job if I manage up, then we're not addressing the hard um, work of overwork and workload. So those would be two examples I'd give you. Yeah, and those are uh, really important things like, you know, to think about. Um, you know, from the standpoint of culture and kind of shifting culture, I mean, we talked to the first guest a lot about culture and kind of get your perspective too. How easy or, or difficult is it to make that shift um, when companies identify that, hey, we need to go from point A to point B? So how, how difficult do you think that is to make it happen, and how successfully do you think companies often do that? I, I think it's incredibly difficult. <laughs> it's like moving the Titanic. And so um, what needs to happen, you know, we tend to think about, okay, we've got to shift the culture as though it's this seven-year odyssey that everyone has to go on. And what we've been very successful doing is, you know, as the Heath brothers would say, shrink that change. Just get managers to talk with their teams about a couple of things that they can do that would make a difference to the, like you mentioned, the autonomy, the culture, the ability of people in the organization to make decisions. I just don't think that, I mean, I think it's wonderful if a CEO will say, we are on a seven-year mission to change the culture. But generally, that's not what's happening. The way it changes is to really just start to have conversations between managers and their teams around what matters. Where is the value that we're offering? How do we clear out low-value work so we can focus on the things that matter. I wrote a book about that called Who Works Where and Who Cares? A Manager's Guide to the New World of Work. And the whole entire point was 
um, that when managers have those kinds of conversations, then the culture of an organization shifts one team at a time. And that's doable. That's much more doable than embarking on some massive, you know, titanic journey. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, sounds like a, an interesting book that uh, our guests might want to, excuse me, our audience might want to check out. Um, it, you know, a lot of ideas about management and leadership that have kind of changed dramatically over the years. And I think this is part of the problem is we still have this one particular group, whether it's just a more traditional group or an older group. Uh, and then this is not a new phenomenon. We always have had, you know, the quote-unquote fuddy-duddies, you know, looking down on the next generation that's coming in. So it's millennials are not, uh, this is nothing new for the next generation coming in. But, you know, kind of over the years, a certain understanding on what makes quality leaders has changed, you know, over the last, let's say, 50 years pretty dramatically. And one of the backbones of any business are those kind of mid-level hands-on managers that have that influence on culture, as long as they kind of know which direction it's supposed to be going that really senior leadership should be providing. So I guess when you look at these current and future workforces, what do you identify as that the management level that will be most key to ensuring the stability and longevity for employees? Is it C-level? Is it mid-managers? Is it, you know, where does that really sit? Well, I think there, there are two opportunities that we hear um, about. And um, if someone is going to keep a big uh, sort of organizational change effort from really taking hold, it's usually at the director or kind of assistant vice president level that the rubber meets the road after senior leadership says, this is our vision. Leaders at that level now have to figure out, how do I take the senior leader vision and actually operationalize it? And it breaks down because a lot of times they don't have that support. So I'd say that that's one area that really needs a lot of focus whenever an organization is making a big change, launching a big initiative. Where I hear, though, time and time again, our clients um, concerned is with that middle manager. The, um, the people who have been in the organization infected and not necessarily um, in a negative way, but living the heritage of that corporation for 10, 15, 20 years who have been successful based on the way things have been. And so there's a lot at stake for them to be able to take risks and try something new, and they need support. They need training. And we know that in general, um, middle managers who have been in organizations for the last 7, 10 years, you know, as training budgets were cut, there's organizations are playing catch-up now to get managers those new skills. We call them, you know, 21st century management skills. And so that is really, it's not the sexiest place to invest, but it's really critical. And we see a lot of leading companies right now refocusing their, their training efforts on middle managers. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, but it really feels like a lot of those middle managers that are struggling, it's not a matter of that they want you know, to struggle or that they're trying to be difficult on purpose is that it really is a lack of training or a lack of understanding or just exposure to these different ideas. And so we kind of go back to, we think it's maybe the third or fourth time in a row we've talked about this on the show, back to the traditional, you know, um, industrial revolution type thinking where, 
you know, you, you show up, I can see you, you're on the assembly line, you, you, you do this certain amount of work, you're measured in a very, you know, linear way, and that really doesn't work anymore into, especially our economy, which is generally a service economy. We don't have, most of our workforce is not on an assembly line or anything that closely resembles the Industrial Revolution. So, you know, it's, it's a matter of at least giving them the opportunity to understand it, that there are other ways to approach it, because they're, in my opinion, just approaching it the way that they know, which is sort of that baseline thing that we're all kind of taught subtly in, throughout in our in our upbringing and in society. Is that how you see it, or is there more to it? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think that um, traditionally, as leaders, uh, many of us have grown up with that kind of hierarchical ideal that as a middle manager, I am expected to have the answers. And yet, I don't have the answers. You know, so many middle managers, if we think back to our Psych 101 class and Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, so many of us are still in that kind of food, water, shelter, that that most basic survival mode. And so even if, as a middle manager, I recognize, you know, there's got to be a better way. I'm open to what that way is. I just don't know what it is because for so many um middle managers, they didn't grow up with participatory kind of or participative leadership style. They weren't seeing the the kind of what we used to call empowerment, right? They weren't empowered necessarily to make decisions. And so the managers that we're working with, that we're training, they're so excited to rethink, you know, how do we collaborate when when we're on a global team or how do we really get creative about honoring the, the needs outside of the office for our team members at the same time that we're rocking customer service. So, you know, there are always going to be some curmudgeons who really believe that command and control has um, been beneficial to them, that they, they still believe in it. But I just don't see that for the most part. I see a lot of people who are really invested in doing the right thing but have just they're stressed out and they don't know how, right? Or they're looking right. for new ideas. They're looking for that spark to be reignited. But we're all just so busy checking things off our checklist that we all forget that that's what we need as individuals and we forget that in organizations that's what we need to be investing in. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm wondering if there's a book that this is one of our favorite questions to ask. Is there a book that you're reading right now that you might suggest for our listeners to check out? Yeah, so this is fairly unconventional as I was, um, as I'm thinking about it, and I'm still working through Deepak Chopra's Seven Spiritual Laws of Success, and my friends joke with me, I think I've gotten to about three or four. The reason I bring that up is, is because I am using that book to rethink my leadership style and my leadership approach. What happens if I come at leadership from the perspective that the answers are not at all up to me, but that um, I am, my job as a leader is to create an environment where other people can be creative and contribute? What does it look like if I'm detached from the outcome of a meeting? And how does it shift sort of the power dynamics of my team when everybody looks at me and I'm not going to be the one to get the answers? So I'm always fascinated by by um, models or structures or lenses that we can use as leaders to look through to rethink 
uh, our leadership style, and so I'm having a lot of fun and uh, working very hard to understand some of uh, some of these um, ideas or laws of think fast, so to speak, um, and applying it um, to my leadership style. So it's been a lot of fun. Well, it sounds like a fascinating uh, book to check out. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will want to check that out. Don't forget, we'll put all this information on our peopleg2.com blog, and you can check it out. It'll be up there in a few weeks for this interview, and all the past interviews are up there. Uh, Kara, real important question. How can people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more about you and, and Life Meets Work? Yeah, thanks for asking. So if you go to our website, lifemeetswork.com, you'll find a link to the book and you'll find all kinds of resources, our latest thinking in terms of um, the blogs that we've written, and you'll find a link to this podcast very soon. But, yeah, that's the easiest way, lifemeetswork.com. Okay, I'd love to have you come back and uh, we can finish the conversation at some point. But I really appreciate you being here and sharing with our audience such important information. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you today. All right, thanks again to both my guests. Hopefully uh, all of your uh, listeners gained uh, something you can uh, take back and help you in your own career at your company. Uh, Next week I will be joined by Sean Murphy, the CEO and founder of Switch and Shift. And then uh, Jeff uh, Dubisky, a global talent uh, executive at Wilson HCG. So tune in live on uh, the TuneIn Network uh, to hear them Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or you can catch them on the podcast later on. So, But until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Town Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2. 